let's face it, we live in a culture that is complicit in women sacrificing themselves at the altar of everybody else's needs, because it means that so much gets taken care of. But the God's honest truth is it's not sustainable. Hello and welcome to the Medical Women Podcast, the podcast from the Medical Women's Federation, the largest body of women doctors in the UK. I'm Dr. Nathana Bayankaram, I'm the Vice President of MWF, and I have the honour and joy of being your host, as each week we hear from wonderful guests to help you feel more empowered and confident on your medical career journey. Hello everybody, I hope that you are all doing well. Welcome back to the Medical Women podcast and a very warm welcome if this is your first listen to the podcast. This is the world's first podcast that aims to support and empower medical women in their careers. As always, thank you so much for all the ratings and reviews. If you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, I would so appreciate it if you could take a quick moment to give us five stars and to write a review. It helps the algorithms to know that we exist and that helps us to reach even more women and make even more impact. Now, just before we get started on this episode, I just wanted to make an announcement. It probably feels like I'm always making different announcements, but my announcement this week is the fact that we have got several vacancies on the officer team and the council of the Medical Women's Federation. We're always looking for even more medical women to join us so that we can continue to protect, support and advance medical women in their careers. This is a really, really good opportunity to develop your skills, whether it be leadership skills, teamwork skills. I have been on the council of MWF since 2018 and I wouldn't keep doing it if I didn't enjoy it. Um, I keep applying for roles because I find them really, really enjoyable. It's so lovely um, being in this space that's really supportive and encouraging. For example, we had a council meeting last week and I you know, brought forward a motion. Now, I've never done that before, but I proposed a motion and it was then seconded by another council member. And then um, there was a space for people to respond and so we had a really a really good discussion about the future of the organization and how the organization can best support women in medicine. And the only way that we can do that is if there are people behind the organization. So, so please do apply. And if you're thinking, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't be able to do that. I assure you that you can. So I, my first role was as the representative for the Women in Academic Medicine Committee. Um, the MWF rep on this committee. And I was an SD1. So I'd been a doctor for two and a half years when I applied and took on the role. I wasn't a senior medical academic, clinical academic, but I applied and it helped me develop my skills. And same with being vice president. You know, I remember thinking like, oh, I don't think I can apply. I don't think I'm good enough. And everybody else has been really senior, but I'm really glad that I did apply because somebody had to be the first um, trainee doctor, you know, non-consultant doctor that was the vice president. And, and why shouldn't it be me? And I hope that I have managed to bring lots of things like the podcast and other ideas to the organization. So we'd love to hear your ideas. And speaking of the podcast, I would really, really, really appreciate some help where we're trying to grow our team. It's quite hard for just Jenna and I to be managing the podcast. And in particular, I'd really like some help with social media to help us spread the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in any of these roles, please, please get in touch. I will pop a link in the show notes for you to, to have a look at the different roles available and definitely get applying you know, we keep hearing data that women aren't applying for roles and the reason that there aren't enough women on boards is because women aren't applying for this, that and the other. So let's not count ourselves out of the game. Let's put ourselves in the game and apply. So this week's episode is all about having impact without burnout. Now, I don't know about you, but I am exhausted after this COVID-19 pandemic. And I know that a lot of healthcare professionals are. I think we were probably burnt out even before the pandemic and the pandemic has made things a hell of a lot worse. 
Plus just the whole way that the NHS and medical systems and lots of our systems in society, they run on this paradigm of masculine energy and that, you know, your productivity is what um, results in your self-esteem and you're only as good as all the things that you're producing and you have to constantly be doing, doing, doing. And it's exhausting. Today's guest is somebody who I first heard speaking on a podcast a couple of years ago and she was speaking about creating impact without burnout. And I thought, holy moly, I wish somebody had told me this stuff years ago. And I'm, you know, I'm still quite young. Um, but I wish I had known this years ago because we go into these systems and we think that there's only one way of operating and that we have to be superwoman. Like on last week's podcast, Dr. Marianne Faro spoke about how, you know, there were a few years of her life where she was. Um, working really long hours she was doing um, higher studies a higher degree and she was bringing up young children and I asked her how on earth did you manage to do all of that and her answer was well I didn't really sleep and I was superwoman and that's possible for a very short amount of time but it's not sustainable for long periods of time and I don't know about you because you know all of our listeners range from medical students all the way up to retired doctors so I don't know whereabouts you might be on your career journey but for me, I'm expecting to work as a doctor for at least another 30 years. It'll probably be 40 years, the way things are going with retirement ages. But, you know, at the moment, it's looking like I'm closer to 30 years than 40 years. But who knows? I won't be able to sustain my career if I'm constantly working like superwoman and trying to do 100 things and not look after myself. We have to look after ourselves and we have to operate from a different way. And I want to be able to be a doctor for the next 30 years. And I want to have, you know, I'm a pediatric trainee. So I want to significantly improve child health and health of the population over the next 30 years. I have to be able to do it sustainably and being like, go, go, go all the time just isn't going to do that. And, you, you know, if you listen to the podcast uh, regularly, you will know that sometimes I will say like, oh, I'm sorry that this episode came out a bit late, but I've been on night shifts and I didn't want to stay up and record an intro. So I decided that we'll just put the podcast out a couple of days later. And when if you read things about making podcasts, they're like, you know, make sure your audience always hears from you on the same day of the week. Well, forgive me, but I'm human and doing the podcast is something that I'm doing in my own time but I also want to look after myself so that I can keep being a pediatric doctor and vice president and doing the podcast for a longer period of time. And I'm sure this is resonating with you. I'm sure you also want to have a sustained impact on whatever it is that you might want to make an impact on, but I'm sure you do want to do it in a sustainable way rather than burning out. And I think this is just such an important message. So I'm so delighted that we're having this conversation on the podcast. So this week's guest is the fabulous Dr. Joanna Martin. Jo is a former doctor. So she first trained as a doctor and then she realized that she was making a change, but she wasn't quite making her difference. So then she went to train to become an actor going to the same acting school as Hugh Jackman. So very prestigious acting school in Australia. And then through her drama school, as she explains in the episode, she came across this thing called life coaching and she really found her calling and found her way to make her difference. So Jo is the founder of an organization called One of Many who run leadership and coaching programs specifically for women supporting women to change the way that they operate in the world. So moving away from this masculine superwoman paradigm into something called soft power. And Joe will go on to explain what that is. As I said, I first came across Joe a couple of years ago and have really enjoyed learning the one of many tools and meeting lots of lots of wonderful women in the community. But there are, there are lots of medical women in the community because because we've been operating in the superwoman and being exhausted. And I have to say, just learning about the tools that, that Joe shares and teaches has just been so, so helpful for me. And that's why I wanted to invite her onto the podcast, because I hope that it's helpful for you too. 
And it just so happens that this podcast is coming out on on the week when tickets for the One Woman Conference, their annual conference, are, are going to go on sale. So I will pop a link to that in the show notes. Definitely um, have have a look at that. I hope that you find this episode really, really helpful. I think this is such an important topic for us as medical women to be thinking about, speaking about. We're a bit limited by time, so I didn't get to ask Jo half the things that I wanted to ask her. She's actually a, a really, really amazing and renowned public speaker. And I wanted to do, um, you know, ask her some questions for her to share her wisdom on public speaking. So we'll we'll have to get Joe back to do a whole episode just on that. But I hope that you enjoy this episode. And from listening to this episode, I'd like you to really reflect on how you've been operating in your career and in your life, whether you make space to look after yourself and for times for rest and replenishment. And if you think, oh, I've not really been doing that, that's fine. We're not here to criticize ourselves. We're not here to judge ourselves. But knowing that, what can you do moving forward to look after rest and replenish yourself so that you're then able to go and give to others? It was pointed out to me at the council meeting last week that um, that I, I wasn't telling people that the podcast is free and fun, CPD. So back by popular demand from our council and from some others who have been messaging me, I'm going to restart making the CPD reflective worksheets. So I'll pop a link to that in the show notes as well. So that it's not only the podcast that's CPD, but you've got some evidence of CPD for your ePortfolios. I hope you really enjoy listening to this episode. And as always, please do get back in touch with your comments. I read every single email and comment that we get. It's always so, so helpful. Enjoy the episode. So it's amazing to have with me today, Dr. Joanna Martin. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you. you. Please, could you introduce yourself to, to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So I'm Jo. Um, I am a medic by training myself, although I haven't practiced for a very long time. And so you absolutely do not want to have a cardiac arrest around me at the moment. Um, I, uh, I left medicine after a couple of years, actually, and went to drama school, of all things. Um, and uh, it was whilst I was at drama school that I discovered my what I do now career, which is coaching and training. Um, I live in the UK. Um, I'm an Aussie, but I live in the UK in the countryside on the Cotswolds uh, with my husband, um, who's also Australian. Um, everyone looks at us go, what the hell are you doing in the UK with two Australians? We became British citizens last Monday Woo! and our two little kids, Rosie and James. So, uh, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. In a nutshell, and you've had such an interesting career, Joe. Can you like tell us a little bit more about sort of the different bits of like med school and then drama school? Because imagine people people might be listening, thinking, "How on earth did you end up from this to this to what you do now?" But actually, like when I've heard you tell the story, it does all make sense. And also, it makes if perfect I was sense. Leave med school and do anything else, I would also go to drama school so I can get it. <laughs> I think that's it, right? We we medics end up in medicine, but I'm yet to meet the medic who doesn't have some kind of artistic pursuit or a, a, a musical instrument or a spiritual kind of bent in their in their wings. You know, I mean, there's a few people who are just out and out scientists, and that's it, and that's their whole life. Um, but you know, most of us have something else. You know, I dated. I dated a guy and his something else would be a ski instructor. And, uh, you know, um, we've got a number of medics in our community. You know, I'm thinking of Bex, who's, uh, who's something else would be songwriting and singing. You know, we, I, I think sometimes we get, you know, we medics know that we're whole human beings with other interests, but for the, for the general population, it's kind of a, a weird thing when you say, oh yeah. And I also love to act. So, um, but for me, I, uh, I think, you know, I went into medicine because at the age of six or eight or something, I announced to my parents that I wanted to be a pediatrician simply because I had just heard what a pediatrician was. And six-year-old, eight-year-old noble me thought, wow, a doctor for children. Yes, that's what I'd like to be. 
Um, and my parents were both pharmacists and my grandmother, maternal grandmother, was a nurse matron of her ward. So we were a very medical family. My dad was a compounding pharmacist, actually. So he was like really into homeopathy and um, and uh, naturopathy and making stuff as well. So he was he wasn't kind of just the pharmaceutical kind of side of things, which was which was really interesting, I think, and, and influential in my in my future development. But um, so when when your little six year old kid says to that context, I'm going to be a pediatrician, it's not like that they pushed me and made me be a doctor, but there was so much positive reward and big smiley faces and proud, you know, dad saying, Joe's going to be a pediatrician, you know, for the next like 20 years that that uh, it didn't ever get an option not to be, if you like. Mm. And it was whilst I was at school, it was when I was in year 11, actually, um, that I re I had my first year where I didn't do drama as well, because I couldn't fit it in with the biology, chemistry and physics that I needed to and maths. So I just simply couldn't do drama that year. And oh my God, I missed it so much. And that year I said to my, um, I said to my school teacher, my drama teacher, I said, you know what? I don't think I want to be a doctor. I think I want to be an actor. And bless her, I knew she had my best interests at heart, but it killed me. She said, well, Joe, it's always very good to have something to fall back on. Like she bloody well knew I was an excellent actor. She knew it and I, and she knew I could have done it, but it was the teacher who, it, thinking about what my parents would say, who answered that question, you know, not the teacher who kind of wanted necessarily the best for me. Um, and, and that answer made me then doubt myself and go, oh, okay, my teacher who up until that moment, I thought recognized real talent in me, just told me to have a backup plan. Got it. <laughs> and that, uh, don't get me wrong, I put the paperwork into audition for drama school, like in my last year of school and in my first year, uh, my gap year after school and then my first year of university. I never went to the audition because I was too terrified, but I put the paperwork in every year on year. But yeah, it wasn't really until I was in med school and I was in my, well, actually, no, really, it, it didn't occur properly until I was in my intern year and one of my patients passed away. It was my first patient that had died. Mm. Um, I'd been a doctor 10 weeks. So we had nine week terms and I was in my first week or something of a second week, 11 weeks in, second week of my oncology term. Um, my registrar resigned with burnout the week I arrived. So it was me, baby doctor, and a resident who was Egyptian, didn't speak a lot of English and had just come into the country, you know, because we, uh, in Australia, we would, um, and, and I think it's probably going to be the same in the NHS here right now, we, we, um, we brought in a lot of immigrant doctors and nurses and so on, because we just couldn't staff in some of these regional centres, which is where I did my oncology term. And he was a lovely guy, thank God, excellent procedurally, but terrible at communicating with the patient simply because he didn't have enough language. Mm -hmm. um, so the burden of, you know, 34, um, uh, 34 oncology, like hospitalized oncology patients fell on my tiny shoulders. Uh, four of them had acute leukemia and, and they were trying actively to die like you know, how, daily, right? It's that doing bloods twice daily and checking things and all the rest of it. It was, it was full on. And it was whilst I was there doing that term that I went, uh, I, there was a, a senior oncologist, um, a consultant, and I talked to her after losing this particular patient. Mm. And I remember um, chatting to her about it. And I, the way she answered the questions about the career and how to cope with things, I saw my future and I just saw that I was going to become a mediocre doctor because I didn't love it. I was very good at it because I was good at patients. I understand humans. I was good at getting along with the nurses because I understand humans, but I didn't love it. Um, and I so I knew I would always just be kind of average at it, do you know? And I'd be mediocrely happy and I'd be mediocrely, you know, um, have two, two kids and, you know, a mediocre life and not really love it. And I thought, you know what? I don't think this is me. And so I made a decision at that point 
as I was reflecting on, you know, this, this patient who died of mine, like she was only about, God, I want to say eight years older than me, maybe maximum 10. I don't remember the exact anymore, but she wasn't that much older than me. And she had two little girls. Um, She'd come in for, you know, for basically some, to be hospitalized to do a few tests because we didn't even think the cancer was back. It was just checking a few things, but uh, it became very clear very quickly she was going downhill fast. And when she did pass away, it just, it woke me up to the fact that I had a time limit, you know, and, and here I was living out an unconscious choice as a doctor. I never, I never, as an adult, chose to be a doctor. I chose to be a doctor at the age of six, do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an unexamined choice. And I realized at that moment I had to explore this other part of me. So I decided that evening on reflecting on all of this stuff that I was going to do something in the realm of theater. And so uh, I decided to direct a play. So I went back to my emergency med term, um, uh, the next rotation, and I directed a play for the university whilst, you know, wrapped around uh, around my emergency rotation. And then at the end of that year, I auditioned for drama school and took that took me off to drama school. Um, and uh, the school I ended up in, actually, the one that I chose, was not a five day a week drama school. It was a three day a week drama school that had the assumption that if you want to be a great actor, you've got to be a great human and you've got to have life experience and stuff going on. Um, And in fact, we had a class at that drama school. It was called the Actors Centre Australia. And I'm forever grateful to Dean Carey, who ran that school and founded that school for this. Um, He had a class called Life Coaching because he truly believed if you're going to be a good actor, you've got to be a good human. Um, And it was whilst doing that class where they started giving names to things that I'd been doing since I was four years old, do you know? Like, wow, not everybody thinks this way. That's weird. Um, And uh, I saw an ad in a newspaper that said, could you be a life coach? And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I I could. So I did some life coach training and I went, oh, this is it. This is the blend of helping people and serving of wanting people to be well that took me into medicine Mm. and of performing and like self-expression and storytelling, I think that took me into drama kind of brought together in a way that, um, you know, that our culture allows, you know, I think if I'd been born in another culture, I might've been a shaman, you know, or something like that. Um, um, but yeah, in this culture, it looks like life coaching and, uh, that's what got me started in that, in that career path. So I, uh, I then ran a little life coaching business myself for a few years. I then contracted to the organization that trained me and was then doing a lot of training rather than actually one-on-one coaching. Um, that caused me to nearly burn out actually, uh, it's one of my, one of the things I don't like about the coaching industry is sometimes it just supercharges superwoman or superman for that matter with tools to move even faster and get to burn out quicker. Um, so I think context is everything. But then uh, when I did burn out and I took nine months out to do some nothing, it was during that phase that I spent a lot of time reflecting on what was driving me and and you know my context and my choices and who I wanted to be and how I wanted to be. And I developed a deeper relationship with my own inner feminine energy because I'd been coming purely from superwoman and masculine drive. Uh, and it was as a result of what I then went on and, and achieved from a different kind of energy that eventually after the birth of my son, James, led me to found one of many. And that's where we are now. Um, and one of many is a coaching and training organization supporting women like yourself. And we have a lot of medics in our organization, a lot of NHS employees uh, across the board, actually, um, because I think the NHS is in such uh, dire straits at the moment. Um, and so many people are burning out. And, and that's what we really support people to do is to maintain or indeed increase their impact without burning out by putting themselves at the center and uh, and really taking care of themselves first, right? Yep, absolutely. And I remember I first came across you on one of many when you were you were speaking on a podcast about impact without burnout. And I was just like, whoa, 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 stop. 
you can have impact without burning out. What? Nobody's ever told me this before. What is this? I need to know about this. And then, yeah, I've um, I've been uh, very involved with one of many since. Um, it's great <laughs> to speak a bit about that. Like, you know, yeah. you people, women, and masculine energy and feminine energy. And I think uh, at the moment, particularly, I just see that the NHS is running on on goodwill of staff and staff burning themselves out to keep the NHS going. Yeah, and it's just not sustainable. Um, so it'd be great if you can speak a bit about that of how, you know, Superwoman, like what, how, how do we get into Superwoman and mm. how do we have impact without turning into Superwoman? Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, a lot of us, when we first hear that word Superwoman, we think, oh yeah, I am a Superwoman. Yeah. You know, let's be Superwoman. Uh, and, and I think that's the great myth. I think that's the lie that we have been sold culturally and especially in the medical profession. It was the same in Australia. You are applauded for being the one who stays the latest, pushed hard, you know, pushes through the longest, does the longest shift, deals with the most number of patients before 7 a.m. in the like, you know, it is it, it's bigged up. You know, it's like high five. It's like a yeah. compliment, isn't it? People are like, oh, wow, you're a superwoman. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And there was a book in the 80s that came out, How to Be a Superwoman, right? Um, but I think, it, I think, I think it is, or not I think, I know it is doing women especially a huge disservice because let's face it, we live in a culture that is complicit in women sacrificing themselves at the altar of everybody else's needs. Um, in a culture that kind of is happy to receive, you know, women at their worst, because it means that, you know, that, that, that so much gets taken care of. But the God's honest truth is, as you've just said, it's not, it's not sustainable. So if we think about how we become superwoman and indeed superman, because I think men are not immune from this and men are certainly burning out as well, but just through the lens for women at the moment, um, we, especially medics, most people who get into medicine, right? In order to get into medicine, you have to be an overachiever. You have to be a high achiever and most high achievers become high achievers because at some point in our childhood, we start to consolidate love and achievement being the same that, that we're, we think it, it like, it, it, it calls to us like a siren, you know, this, this, this profession, those of us who think, oh, I'm only worthy of love if I'm, I'm achieving, right? And I, that was certainly me. That, that's, uh, you know, I grew up down, down that path that I have, to, I have to be achieving something or doing something or getting a result to be worthy of, of love. Um, not that my parents were bad. Like, they were decent parents, you know, but, um, but you know, uh, stuff happened, divorces happened and things, and you make these sorts of little tiny decisions when you're small. And so, therefore, we become overachievers. So medicine sorts, first of all, for people predisposed to go into superwoman as overachievers. And so because we have to get the best marks to get in, right? So we get in. And then the competition really starts because it's like, okay, getting to the top of the class and being getting to the really competitive training places and all of that sort of thing. And we end up gathering more and more evidence that we have to keep going harder and harder and harder um, in order to sustain. And it is, as we say, celebrated and rewarded in that culture. But what is happening underneath it is quite insidious. Now, I don't have the endocrinological research to back this up, but one day when I return to my medical roots, I'd love to do uh, some research into this. But I have a theory that the reason that we women burn out at higher rates, like we, suf we suffer from job stress and burnout at a rate 60% higher than men, according to the statistics. And my hypothesis is that that drive that it takes to stay in that aggressive, go after a goal, keep pushing through energy, is hormonally moderated in our system. We know in order to do anything, hormones are tearing around our system, telling our body how to respond all of the time. There's a couple of hormones we can use for that. One is testosterone, of course. You put testosterone in a rat, we know they get aggressive, they get focused, and they go after stuff, right? 
Um, now, it's really obvious. Men have a ton more testosterone in their system. I think it's 13 times, but of course we go up and down during our cycle, but you know, uh, a ton more testosterone than the female body does. So therefore, I wonder, my hypothesis, I wonder if in the absence of testosterone to moderate that push through, go after it, goal-focused, aggressive, you know, energy that superwoman needs to keep performing, that we fall back on our adrenaline cortisol axis, right? Mm. Our, our, our stress hormones to sustain it because adrenaline will do the job too. But then we're relying on that, you know, earlier than I think our male counterparts do. Um, and, and the result is adrenal fatigue, exhaustion, burnout, and what we're seeing um, around the the medical system now at rates higher than ever before is is exactly that. And people leaving the profession in swathes because they simply can't do it anymore. I mean, we were we were conducting at one of many. I I just I saw what was going on in the NHS during the pandemic, and I thought, fuck, I've got to help in some way. Like I couldn't. There was no way I was going back into medicine, but we, I started running these things called listening rooms. And it was just a space that, um, you know, NHS professionals from our community and some from with that outside of our community started coming along as well, just to come in and share safely what was going on. And what I heard that you guys were facing, oh my God, it was to think how you kept showing up day after day. And now it's not gotten any better, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's less resource and now there's more staff that have left. Um, it's like this reprieve that, you know, maybe things were going to get better from a clinical perspective is now, I feel like you guys, you know, I'm hearing the stories from patients and doctors about, you know, people in corridors and trolleys and that's that's just in you know secondary care in the hospitals in primary care my god it's nuts and it is we are running as the system as you said the system is running on goodwill so the the mother energy the mothering energy that sacrifices for everybody else or the warrioress energy that sacrifices for the cause but the key word here is sacrifice we're running on the goodwill of people who are putting their needs at the bottom of the list they're putting patients first, their colleagues second, their family third, and themselves somewhere near 67th probably uh, because that is how we are unconsciously groomed as doctors and medics because of our patterning. That's what gets us into med school that then gets, you know, rewarded and accoladed and, and also belittled if you don't if you don't show up and do it in that in that way, you're not hardcore enough, right? So yeah, I think uh, that's option one. Yeah, that's Superwoman. That's how she rolls, and she is not sustainable in the long term. She just isn't. So then the question becomes: Well, what's what's the alternative, right? Um, and the alternative that we talk about at one of many is what we call soft power, not not the political kind of um, approach, but a personal place to stand that says, okay, superwoman's just an archetypal way of behaving, right? Perhaps there's other archetypal ways of behaving that I could get stuff done, but without compromising my needs without burning myself out. So here at one of many, we talk about five women's power types. Um, we talk about the warrioress and she is great for getting shit done, but we have to be careful because she too will sacrifice for the cause. So we've got to watch out for her in, in medicine as well. There's the mother, of course, which is unconditionally loving and accepting. But again, in medicine, she fuels so much of what we do. So we have to be careful because she will sacrifice for people that she holds near and dear. So there are three others that are critical to bring into our everyday vocabulary, I think, um, you know, in the, in the medical profession. Those are queen. So queen is the part of us that is visionary. She sees the big picture. She sees the good of the realm. And the queen knows that for the good of the realm, she has to be okay, right? If the queen is not okay, the realm is not okay. And in, in, in medicine, the realm is 
the entirety of your of your uh, patients, your colleagues, your family, like all of those people you want the best for, that is your realm. And in order for the realm to be okay, Queen's got to be okay. So she knows that her needs are important and she will put her needs first. She will take a break. And I know I can say that and I can already hear the thoughts echoing down the podcast line of, what do you mean take a break? Have you seen the number of trolleys in the hall? We don't even have trolleys anymore. We've got people sitting there with, you know, drips sitting in corridor. Like, I know, and they're going to be sitting there whether you eat the sandwich or you don't eat the sandwich. But if you eat the sandwich, you will be there next week and the week after. If you don't eat the sandwich, you won't be there tomorrow, you know? And this is the kind of reprioritization that Queen helps us to see. It's a major catastrophe in, you know, in 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 the system at the moment. I don't know how you're doing it. But what I do know is it's still going to be just the same if you take 15 minutes for yourself versus if you don't take 15 minutes for yourself and those 15 minutes add up to the beginnings of sustainability and that's where queen will say no no i can't i am got i must do this now for for me to sustain there's also the lover energy um and she can feel as if you're on the brink of burnout she feels a really long way away because lover energy is the center of our self-care she is the what the center of self-love. She is the part of us, like it's only possible to burn out if you don't have access to lover. And so therefore, when women come into our community, it's often the one where we start and say, okay, we've got to start with this. And yes, she's the center of our sens- sensuality and sexuality as well. Um, they all kind of live in that same place. But importantly for us, I think in, in the medical profession, it's the part of us that n- that that just naturally will look after ourselves that naturally will will notice that I've been inside from 7am to 7pm before I go to bed tonight, I'm going to go for a walk in the park, even if it's dark, you know, um, those sorts of things, because I can smell the, I can smell the dew starting to freeze and, you know, and she's in her senses and taking it all in. And then the final power type that we talk about is the sorceress. And I think she's really important right now for navigating no matter what industry we're in, but she's the part of us that has faith. She's the part of us that believes it's all for some greater purpose, perhaps. She's the part of us that can uh, conjure miracles and by God, we need miracles. Um, So I think she's a really important part to bring in as well, whether that's just saying a tiny prayer before a shift or it's lighting a candle when you get home to just have five minutes of stillness um, or journaling or some kind of connection with your higher self like these little moments uh, can make a real difference you know i've noticed whenever i've gone to hospitals recently i get called into the chapels you know i'm not i'm not a christian myself i'm kind of a very spiritual person but but um, i know they're usually non-denominational and sometimes just going in there even if you don't want to pray just for a moment peace quiet that kind of thing can give you that little moment of sorceress to get back to your bigger picture so if we can operate from these power types and that's not the end of the story, right? Because I can, or again, I can hear all of the objections, but we've only got 40 minutes together. So I can't kind of get all of the distinctions through. But I think the key, if I was to leave listeners with anything, the key to owning and stepping into soft power, the key to having impact without burnout is the shift away from sacrifice and into sustainability. And to get into sustainability, just as if we look at it on a global scale for the environment, it's the same for our micro environment of our own being. We have to look after ourselves first. The basics, I'm talking the basics, you know, I'm not talking about God, you need a 10 week holiday, you probably do, but I'm talking about drink enough water, eat regularly, get enough sleep when you can. Um, and get some alone time, put some music on and dance. And Nuthan, I know you've inspired our entire community by making the commitment of dancing one minute a day for a year and change your life because of it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, think, um, I think it's just making it 
small things and like you say it's sustainable like like for me you know I'm expecting to be working for at least another 30 years there's no way there's no way I can do that in superwoman mm. and I've, I've definitely done superwoman in the past and it it didn't end very well I was exhausted and you know burning out almost like there has to be another way <laughs> I was sort of yeah I think I was in my sorceress like help me find another way and then oh there's this person called Joe Martin and this thing called one of many <laughs> but it just it's such a, a different way of of doing things and I think I think we need that to keep things going people you know people people don't want to to be leaving and I think the NHS is a wonderful organization it's great that we have this healthcare system but we have to keep it going and the only way we can do that is looking after ourselves and it's it's hard when from day one of med school, we get told the care of your patient is, is your first, first concern. It's always patient, patient, colleagues, mm. everybody else, and then us. Mm. It is difficult, but, um, but we, we can't do any of those things if, if we don't, don't look after ourselves. Exactly. And I, I think the state of the system shows us right now that we have to make that change. I mean, nurses are striking, do you know, people are, um, are because, the conditions are crap, right? Right alongside the systemic change that everyone's agitating for, there's got to be your own internal change that says, I am going to stop and drink water. I am going to stop and eat lunch. I am going to go for a walk. My shift has finished. And I mean, the awful thing, I get it, right? I get it. The awful thing um, is there are still patients waiting to be seen. Do you know, I mean, gosh, I can't even imagine how hard that must be to make that choice. But if you're to come again the next day and do it again, like there's got to be some boundary setting. Um, and I think that boundary setting, you know, it's not just, it's not just to please don't strike and set boundaries just to stick it to the man. Like, strike and set boundaries so that you can sustain because mm. then you can come back the next day you know with something in the tank and i think that's that's the thing that that any functioning sensible human who takes a moment to breathe and ask themselves because of course when someone's in acute need and they want you to be there right then and there on that day because they're the one there different kettle of fish, of course, that they're going to be wanting all of the attention as a patient. Of course you do. But I, I think that the majority of humans, if you ask them, would you rather this person go take their lunch break so that they can come back to work again tomorrow, 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 versus, you know, work through every single day and probably resign in three months time? What do you think's better for the, you know, for the good of, of the nation? You'd be hard pressed to find someone who would say, no, I think they should just work hard for three months and then burn out after their six years of med school and their, you know, 10 years of postgraduate or whatever it is. Yeah, all that education. No, no, no. Just push through. Don't have a break. You're, the most important thing is the patient that's there right in front of you. I think as a systemically and culturally, we need to shift that, you know, mm -hmm. actually actually the most important is the sovereignty sovereignty of the individual providing the care it has to be because otherwise it doesn't work right the whole thing doesn't work yeah and you're right like everybody in the system is a human and people understand humans mm. um and i'll you know i'll i'll be honest with parents and things and say like if i've you know my ward round has finished at two i'm absolutely starving and there's a child that needs a cannula I know that if I go and eat and come back, I will get that cannula in first time. Mm. If I don't, my success rate is going to be really low. So I'll say to parents, you know, I'm going to go very quickly, eat some food and come back and then we'll get this cannula in. And it's so much easier and so much better. And I think when I was, you know, I mean, I'm not that senior, but when I was more junior, I'd be like, oh, but this needs doing and this needs doing and I can't take a break until they do all the jobs. Whereas I've realized now actually, I am a much better doctor if I have stopped, I've had some water, I've had some food, I've looked after my needs. I'm much better at looking after everybody else. Mm. Unless it's an emergency, in which case I'm not going to sit there and eat my sandwich, I will run. Mm. Um, but it's it, I've, I've seen the shifts in me and also then modeling that to my colleagues and them seeing that, oh yeah, actually this, this is okay. 
So yeah. you're right. It's just it's changing the whole paradigm of of how we function as medics and and in the health service. I think it's so. I think it's critically important. Do you know? I think it's really, really important. Oh, I could just talk to you for hours about this, Joe. But um, <laughs> but Zoom Zoom is going to stop us. So um, so I have got some quick fire questions for you. If that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, one or two books that you would recommend that everybody reads. Oh my God, I hate the one or two book questions because there are so many books that have changed my life. Um, So ones that are jumping into my mind at the moment are The Artist's Way, because that is the one that truly changed my life. The Artist's Way was my introduction into personal development. It was through the lens of, you know, expressing our creativity and and discovering our inner artist by Julia Cameron. Um, And... uh, and a lot of the habits and tools that I use to this day and that we, you know, that we share and advocate in the one of many community are adaptations of things I learned from her when I was, you know, 19 years old. Um, so that truly has changed my life. It's very much about getting connected to our authentic self. Um, and I, I blame her for get, giving me the courage to leave the medical profession. <laughs> um, so that's a that's a that's a really great one, a really really great one. Um, and what else have I loved recently? Things that have made a real difference. Do you know? I've got to say that what is sustaining me at the moment is fiction. To be honest, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to name like any one individual book, but I'm really something that's become really important for me as I am becoming more human and trying to be a better human is the much needed reckoning around race and and white supremacy that we have in our culture at the moment and there's so much reading of nonfiction around it i can do and so i've really enjoyed reading a lot of uh authors in genres that i like like fantasy and science fiction and stuff who are um people of color and it just helps me to see the see you know to see my white privilege through a different lens through the but in 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 an, in a different reality that also helps me to have those moments of escape and entertainment and so on i'm really enjoying I, i'm really enjoying that at the moment wonderful is there anything that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier on in your career god everything <laughs> <laughs> I knew all of it back then I was just talking to my sister yesterday and I said you know I've just I've just been diagnosed with some arthritis in my I've got an osteophyte at my you know at my uh at c7 and I'm like what no I'm only 45 I'm not old yet um and so we were complaining about the fact that like you know we had such wonderful lives in our 20s and and we were waiting for something to happen still I'm like no that was it that was the good stuff <laughs> so I think there's a little part of me that kind of I mean don't get me wrong I love being a mom I love being a mom and I would never not be a mom but there's a little part of me that wishes that I could have been present to the gift that not having children is when I didn't have them. There was so much of me just feeling the clock ticking and looking for my perfect partner and all of that kind of stuff to get the shit ticked off. So that, and you know, to a certain extent, of course you do. Um, Another part of me wishes that I could have told my younger self, have the kids earlier so that, you know, you get them out of the house where you're still not an arthritic old, you know, old woman, you can enjoy something afterwards. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think, I think I wish I had been present. I think that's it. I wish I, the bottom line, it's, I wish, I wish someone had, they probably did say it to me, but I didn't hear. I wish I had the wisdom to be present younger. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, and my last quick fire question is a question that I'm borrowing from a group of children and young people that work with the Royal College of Pediatrics. So the question is, if you were a type of biscuit, what type of biscuit would you be and why? Oh, oh, that is a good question. Hmm. If I were a type of biscuit, what sort of biscuit would I be and why? I would be, (laughs) um, I would be like some kind of a um, raw vegan sort of brownie. 
okay. in that I'm I'm full of goodness. Like you can, like I look a bit wicked. Um, and I'm going to be very nourishing, but it's good stuff. Like I'm going to give it to you straight between the eyes. Like it's, I'm not a chocolate biscuit. You're not going to get the sugar coated platitudes from me. Um, unfortunately I don't, I don't do well with that stuff. I pretend I, t- I tend to call it like it is. So I think I would be like a, a smoosh up of dates and almonds with some cacao powder in there formed into the shape of some kind of biscuit um, that would be nourishing for you in the long term, uh, but not quite as enjoyable in the moment. That sounds delicious. I really want one of those biscuits now. <laughs> Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We'll we'll definitely have to get you on again because there's still so much that, that I wanted to talk to you about that we didn't get to cover because 40 minutes go so fast. Um, but thank you so much for coming. Um, uh, we'll definitely you're so put, welcome. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes so that people can find one of many. And um, I know we've got the One Woman Conference coming up in May, which um, which is very exciting. It was my first in-person one of many event in 2022 and it was amazing so um we'll definitely pop a link to that in the show notes but is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with oh no just to say that you are a priceless resource my darling if you're listening to this you being okay is critically important so please 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 make yourself okay do whatever it takes to make yourself okay thank you so much joe you're welcome thank you for everything you do Nathana. thank you so much for listening to the medical women podcast make sure to subscribe for free on whichever podcast platform you listen on so that you automatically get our episodes the aim of this podcast is to support and empower as many medical women in their careers as we possibly can so please share this episode with at least one other medical woman If you're interested in joining the Medical Women's Federation, we would love to have you. And all links to our website and social media are in the show notes. This podcast has been produced on behalf of the Medical Women's Federation by Dr. Nathana Biancrum and Ms. Jenna McKenzie. Our music was composed and played by Dr. Keithke Biancrum. Thank you so much for listening.